well, I usually ditch the coat when I come up here, but since I'm studying the life of Luther, I just thought this maybe makes me look a little bit more studious or something. Um, boy, I have got quite a task ahead of me. Just to let you know, I usually come up here with seven pages or eight pages of notes when I preach. Uh, today I've got ten, so um, if, I if I cause you to tarry with me a little bit longer, um, uh, please forgive, I apologize at the outset. Also, let me just say um, at the outset that usually in our church, if you're here, you're visiting, you, um, if you were to come here on a regular uh, Sunday, today we are celebrating the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. We are remembering uh, the Reformation, and we are taking this Sunday uh, because uh, the 31st will be actually Reformation Day, uh, but uh, we're going to take a special Sunday today to re remember uh, the lightning rod, if you would, of the Reformation, Martin Luther. But usually our stable way of, of meeting and gathering together as a church is that we go verse by verse through the Bible, expositionally, exegetically, through the Word of God. And so that is what we do here. Uh, we don't lecture here. We don't engage in simply conversation. We preach the Word of God, and we teach the Word of God verse by verse, passage by passage. So uh, that's what you can expect from Heritage Grace. Um, and today, though, I have a glorious, glorious uh, opportunity to set before you an example that is oh so relevant. But I want to begin by going to the book of Hebrews. Why don't you stand with me? And for today, uh, as we read God's Word, we're going to anchor everything in the Word of God, even though we are looking at the life of Martin Luther, I want to begin by giving us the basis for biographical reflection. Hebrews chapter 13, I want to read with you verses 7 through 8. Hebrews 13, verses 7 through 8. Uh, before I read this, I just made a mental note. I spoke to one of the ladies working back there in the nursery and she said, I wish I could really listen to today's sermon. So if your wife or, or, or if you know who's back there today, please have them listen to this. I think it will be a real challenge, encourage, and really educational for their souls. Now, Hebrews 13, beginning in verse 7, this is what the Word of God says. Remember those who led you, who spoke the Word of God to you, Considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you today, Lord, for human examples, imperfect examples, weak examples that you have chosen sovereignly to give us, not only in the canon of your holy word, O oh God, not only in the inspired pages of your word, but also in the sovereign and providential pages of history. Those men and women that you have chosen to, to raise up for our instruction and so that we can, in the legacy of Hebrews, Look and consider their conduct and imitate their faith even now, knowing that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And so, Lord, help us and remind us as we consider the courage of Martin Luther that the God of Luther is our God today. And that Luther and that you, God, are no longer looking at the life of Luther. But now your eyes are upon this generation. And the same God that worked powerfully in the Protestant Reformation is now at work in the hearts and minds of today's church. And that every single day for every single believer in Christ presents an incredible opportunity to live life for the glory of God. Thank you, Lord. Bless our time together. Help your people to focus as there will be so much information disseminated today. Help us. Give us attentive ears and a mind that is ready to worship since you have called us to worship you with all of our mind, all of our heart and our strength. 
We thank you and bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let me begin by just giving you an encouragement from a personal perspective, and that is studying biography. In looking at biography, I have been so encouraged at considering the life of this man. Two books in particular played a role as I prepared for this. Number one, Heiko Obermann's book on Luther, Luther, a life, a life lived between God and the devil. And then also the biography by Roland Bainton, uh, Here I Stand another biography by Luther. Those two biographies really uh, hailed as the standards uh, among biographies of the life of Martin Luther. And we are studying the life of Martin Luther, the reformer, not Martin Luther, the civil rights leader. I actually mentioned to a couple people, I'm going to be preaching on Martin Luther, and they actually thought I was talking about uh, Martin Luther King Jr. No, we are looking at the Protestant reformer Martin Luther first. Let me begin by sort of setting the stage and wetting your palate as to why Luther is relevant for us today and how I found his example in the area of courage to be so helpful to me. Uh, several years ago, many years ago, Dr. John Piper did a biography on Luther where he focused on the life of Luther at study. That is, he focused on the life of Martin Luther as a scholar he focused on his life and his labors in, in the sacred desk. They're studying away at the word of God and, and how he came upon the doctrine of justification by faith. My, uh, my focus today is more on the courage of this man, the courage of this man. But in order to sort of prime the pump for that, let me begin to deal with this issue in which we live in today. The fact that we're living in a postmodern world. I want to set the stage by looking at a controversy that, was, that, that another uh, uh, great reformer of our day was involved in, namely Dr. Albert, or Dr. Albert Moeller from Southern Seminary. Some time ago, he got in a back and forth with two leading news uh, uh, um, uh, writers, uh, guys that write for uh, Newsweek and for USA Today, but let me just set the stage here. Um, Luther had, or excuse me, Mar uh, Moeller was responding to an article that was written by uh, a, a gentleman by the name of John Meacham. He writes for Newsweek, and uh, he wrote on the decline and fall of Christian America, the decline and fall for, of Christian America. And Meacham, the writer for Newsweek, says, that all of these different elements point to the fact that we are now living in a post-Christian era. He points to the, sec the secularization of American culture. He points to the rise of militant is uh, atheism. He points to the decline of morality. He points to the retreat of Christianity from the cultural scene. All of that as evidence that we are now living in a post-Christian nation. In response... Another uh, writer from USA Today to this time responds with an article entitled, Not Even Close. His response is this, that Machem's analysis was wrong, and that what Machem was doing was inflating the facts. And so for, for, for this writer, his, by the name of Stephen Prothero, Stephen Prothero writes that Machem's uh, conclusions are unfounded. In the end, Dr. Moeller writes a response to both of these men and says that he agrees with both of these men and he disagrees with both of these men. Machem's pessimism of living in a post-Christian nation is countered with Prothero's analysis that college students everywhere still consider this a Christian nation. They point to the fact that, that America is certainly not a Buddhist nation or a Muslim nation or a Jewish nation, but that it is, in fact, a Christian nation. Now, here's a secular news writer saying we still live in a Christian nation, and he points to things like Christmas, to substantiate the fact that, look, we're still celebrating things like Christmas. We have lots of religious symbols all around us. So, Moeller responds to both of these men, and this is what he says. He says, my concern lies not so much with cultural influence as much as with the vitality and integrity of Christian witness. My comments may sound 
uh, and then he uses this crazy word, elegiac, which means mournful. He says, but in some way they are. My concern is with the very trends that Poth Prothero himself identified. The transformation of American Christianity into just a Christian-branded spirituality. He says, this is part of my concern. My central concern is evangelism, not cultural influence. And my definition of Christianity is unapologetically tied to the embrace of the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. And here I totally agree with Albert Moeller. The doctrinal declension of American Christianity is writ large. He says, the great institutions of Christian learning of eras past are now largely bastions of secular worldviews. Even when these institutions are still classified in some way according to a tie to Christian truth in the past. Such is also the case with the mainline Protestantism, where theological liberalism has redefined Christianity as something other than historic, biblical Christianity. And so what Muller is saying is that it is possible to be surrounded by Christian things, Christian symbols, Christian language, Christian literature, Christian ideas, and yet not be in a Christian nation at all. Enter Martin Luther. This is where we can ground ourselves with what happens to Luther. And I will come back to Moeller's post. But first, what I want to do is draw an analogy between Luther's life and our life today and how we can learn from his example in our own postmodern context today. So, in order to do that, we have to begin with Luther, and we should begin at the beginning. So, let's look at his birth and, of course, his conversion. Martin Luther was born in Eisleben on November the 10th, uh, 1483. He was raised by Hans and Margareta Luther, devout Roman Catholics. Luther's parents were religious, but they were not fanatics. They tried to provide Luther a good moral upbringing, and in fact, they were very strict. As a matter of fact, Luther recounts days in which he thought he was beaten for small sins. One time he said he was beaten, he was, he was treated harshly, disciplined harshly by his father because he had stolen a nut. Luther was therefore always raised with the authority of the Catholic Church as his frame of mind. And his father was also a very hardworking man. He was a farmer, but he left the farming industry to go work in the mines. He thought that in the mines he could provide a better home for his family and a better future for his family. He thought that with the help of St. Anne, who was the patroness of the miners, he could give a, a, a better opportunity for his children and eventually send them off to school. And of course, this happened. Hans Luther did provide that for Luther, for Martin Luther. He sent him to law school. You know that about Luther's life, if you know anything about Luther's life. But the real transition in Luther's life took place when he was 21 years old. While he was studying law at the University of Erfurt, Luther's life would dramatically change. One night after a short visit with his parents, you've probably heard the story, he's going back to the university at Air Force where he's studying law, and he gets caught in a storm. He gets caught in a storm. It was a single bolt of lightning that struck a chord in Martin Luther's soul. It awakened him, this storm. It awakened him to the reality and to the eminence of death and eternity. His life turned upside down, gripped by eternity itself. Now, you have to understand that in the mind of Luther, God was inaccessible. Even Jesus Christ during the medieval period of time was portrayed as a harsh, condemning, unaccessible judge, unmerciful. And that's where the Catholic Church a lot of times drove people to saint worship and to the mediatorial uh, 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 office of Mary. 
Well, so Luther is caught in the storm, and he reaches out to the only place that he thinks he can find some kind of mercy, St. Anne. He cries out, help me, St. Anne, I will become a monk. How many of you have heard that line? Amazingly, Luther, to the great uh, behest of all of his friends who were trying to get him to stay the course at law school, leaves law school to become a monk. Something happened to this man on this road. He was truly changed. And Luther kept his oath. He went to the monastery. It was an Augustinian monastery, which means it was one of the strictest monasteries in, uh, that was available. Luther thought that in order to get to God, he had to live a life of hermitage, a life of hermitage. Now, I know a little bit about that life. I feel like a hermit at times when I have to sit in my study for hours at a time and uh, uh, have to study God's Word and prepare sermons, but it was nothing like the cloistered life of Martin Luther. Luther lived the strictest monastic life imaginable. His life was thoroughly ascetic, liturgical, and secluded. While, at, while he was in the monastery, Luther was mentored by a man by the name of Johann van Staupitz. I love that name. Johann van Staupitz. He was the monk's abbot, in other words, his, their keeper. And he took notice right away that Luther was a genius. He saw right away that Luther was prodigious in his abilities to grasp religion. Luther had excelled even in law back at Erfurt. He had earned a master's degree. He was a genius. God naturally had gifted him with his mental faculty. He had learned great at the monastery. He had learned great amounts of religious truth, but in his heart he had settled with none of it. While he was at the monastery, Luther gave himself to intense introspection, sometimes going to confessional for six hours at a time, confessing his sins to God, starving himself, beating himself, and denying himself some of the most simple pleasures of life, all in the pursuit of salvation. Dr. Piper points out that Luther waited 20 years to get married while seeking salvation in monastic living. Quote, Piper says, there was 20 years of wrestling with the temptations of a single man who had very powerful drives. But in the monastery, Luther said this, I did not think about women, money, possessions. Instead, my heart trembled and I fidgeted about whether or not God would bestow his grace on me. For I had strayed from faith and I could not imagine that God had been angered with me, whom I in turn had to appease by doing good works. Staupitz, his mentor, saw that Luther could be useful if he could just get him to settle down and not be so serious about peace with God. And so Staupitz thinks of a couple different ways to reach Luther. First, he sends Luther on a pilgrimage to Rome. He says, you are going to go see the great city. You're going to go see the city of St. Peter, and there you will be so inspired that you will forget everything about the troubles of your soul. But actually, it had the reverse effect. Going to Rome confused Luther. It actually began to sow the seeds of Protestant animosity in Rome. He saw all the hypocrisy, all of the religious abuses going on. His mentor thought that if he could not inspire him with relics, then maybe he can smother him with ministry. When Luther came back, Staupitz had determined to overload him with work. And, he's, and he determined, we're going to get Luther working, teaching, preaching, studying, so much so that he won't have time to listen to his soul. But he could not manipulate Luther's soul. He could not quiet down what was going on. He couldn't drown out the noise of his soul. So that what ended up happening to Luther is that even though he was bombarded by religious things, there was still a strange, hollow heart where nothing was right. And I think so many people come to church with a strange, hollow heart where nothing is right because there's no peace with God, because you're not right with God, because you don't know God, and because you don't know what God is going to do to you when you die. 
These are the major things that gripped Luther's heart. Luther was gripped by infinity. He was gripped by the massiveness of the being of God. And he knew that he couldn't suppress it, he couldn't deny it, and he could not escape it. And so Staupitz, by the sovereign hand of God, forced Luther to the Bible, <laughs> which is one of the greatest things that ever happened. Here is a Catholic monk trying to manipulate salvation in one of his protégés by forcing him to be preoccupied with theology. Didn't he know that eventually he would teach the book of Romans? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. But sadly, so many people today, like Luther, can be involved in all sorts of religious things. You can be surrounded by religious rhetoric and ideas, religious symbols, church on every block, but yet, like Luther, have nothing of the reality in your own soul. Be told about the love of God, but, no, but have no love for Him yourself. Lamentably, for many professing Christians, even seminary students, seminary professors, Luther was a seminary professor. Pastors, Sunday school teachers, for many people, sadly, week in and week out, though they go to church, God remains largely unknown. Although Luther was filled with this struggle, this depression, this anger, this fear, he never stopped studying. And it was when he began studying the book of Romans. He fell upon that place in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 that say, I am not ashamed of the gospel of God, for it is the, it is the, the power of God unto salvation. And he goes on to read verse 17, that by faith the just man shall live. Luther had come to hate the phrase, the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And he had hated that word, the righteousness of God, that God was righteous, God was holy, God was a judge. Luther couldn't overcome that. All he saw when he thought about the righteousness of God was his own condemnation because he was so unrighteous. And all these good works were not making him any more righteous. Finally, Luther looks at the context of Romans and he says that he found his salvation here. He says here in the context of Romans 1.17, he says, I found myself to be altogether born again and I had entered paradise itself through open gates. Here a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. That's what we're praying for, hopefully, for the church, right? when people come, when you bring your friends, for your children, that another face would be shown to them, a different sign. Luther says, I extolled my sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred with which I had hated the word righteousness of God. That, thus, that place in Paul, Romans 1.17, was for me truth, the gate of paradise. That is something of Luther's conversion. Now, even though for Luther personally, the, the gates of paradise were open, there was another door that was beginning to open, and it was the door of Roman oppression. Luther's bright discoveries were both instant and cumulative. He began to see the great excesses of the Roman Catholic Church. He began to connect all of the dots. He began studying the patristics. He began studying Augustine and, of course, Paul himself. Luther knew that human merit could never do anything to avert the wrath of God. And despite all of his friends and all of his contemporaries, he knew that good works could not save. Luther says, or excuse me, Stephen Nichols, writing about Luther, says, This plagued Luther much more than it did his contemporaries. They thought that God's standard of righteousness could be met by racking up enough merit, enough righteous deeds. But Luther knew it wasn't a matter of quantity, but of quality. We are sinners not merely in that we sin, but at the very root of our being, 
Sin isn't just a matter of what we do. It's a matter of who we are. And nothing we can do, even if we're saints, can overcome that. Probably Luther's most famous book was the book entitled The Bondage of the Will. Here, Luther discovers the doctrine of total depravity and the inability of the will, saying that man, because his will is has fallen and it is bound, it sins of necessity. He must sin because his nature demands it. Listen to what Luther says. Quote, For if man has lost his freedom and is forced to serve sin and cannot will good, what conclusion can more justly be drawn concerning him than that he sins and wills evil necessarily? Let all free will in the world do all that it can with all of its strength. It will never give rise to a single instance of ability to avoid being hardened if God does not give the Spirit or of meriting mercy if it is left to its own strength. Dr. Piper said, what we need is not free will, we need wills made free. And Luther resonated with that. Later on, he would tell Erasmus that the number one controversy that separated him and the Counter-Reformation was the doctrine of the will. Not even more than the doctrine of justification by faith alone. It was interpreting anthropology. Who is man? What is man like? How does he relate to sin? What is sin? All of those questions. But for Luther... His life was not yet cast into the kind of controversy that you hear about in the Reformation. It took for him to finally take up his pen and to say something about Rome. And this is where we can really start identifying with Luther's courage. Finally, October 31st, 1517, Luther nailed his 95 Thesis to the door of the church at Wittenberg. It was due to the arrival of Johann Tetzel. Tetzel was a commissioned by the Pope to go to Wittenberg, to go throughout Germany and to raise money for St. Peter's Basilica and even to finish uh, Michelangelo's painting of the Sistine Chapel. Tetzel was selling indulgences, and that's what got Luther fired up. Tetzel was, went so far not just to sell indulgences, but he went so far as to say that indulgences removed a person's guilt and removed a complete forgiveness of sin, offered complete forgiveness of sin. So Luther had heard enough. He had heard enough. To say something of the work of Tetzel, he was he was trying to buy, he was, he was offering people the ability to buy salvation. Say something like Luther, brothers and sisters. Don't be afraid. Take up the pen. Do whatever you can. Say something at home. Say something in your family. When you see error, speak up. When God gives you opportunity. Luther posted his, uh, his thesis during Hallow's Eve, right before All Saints Day, a Roman Catholic holiday. This would be a time when Luther knew that he would get exposure and the attention of the public. His 95 Thesis was written largely with his contemporaries in mind. He wanted to start a conversation, to use Al Mohler's favorite word. He wanted to, use, he wanted to begin a dialogue with other scholars in the field, and he didn't write in order to offend. That wasn't his initial uh, thrust. However, he was strident. He was candor. He was honest, brutally honest. Let me just read to you one line from the thesis. This is line 86 of the 95 thesis. Luther says, why does the pope who has more wealth today, uh, whose wealth today is greater than the wealth of the richest Crassus, old Roman politician, build the basilica of St. Peter with the money of poor believers rather than with his own money. <laughs> so here's Luther calling out the Pope and saying, if the Pope wants the basilica to be built, let him pay for it. Why does he burden the poor people? 
Now, this is something we can learn from Luther. Luther loved people. Luther loved the souls of the peasants. He loved everybody. He cared. As You know, I know Luther has a reputation for being crass and harsh at times, but make no mistake about it, Luther was blood earnest about the souls of the people. So we can start seeing his courage here. He knew that speaking about the excesses of the Pope would result in what Luther later referred to as getting in the Pope's hair and the Pope ultimately getting in my hair. That's what Luther said. It should not surprise us that it was a response to Tetzel that Luther finally acted. The Pope was so desperate to finish the Basilica that his commissioner Tetzel was offering total pardon of sins for the purchase of indulgences. Imagine being Martin Luther. Let's rewind. Go back to Luther at the monastery. Here you are, wrestling with God, flogging yourself, starving yourself, confessing your sins for hours at a time, taking pilgrimages to Rome, studying, laboring, preaching, teaching, all in hopes that you might be forgiven of your sins. And here comes Tetzel, who says, just give me a couple of coins, put a couple coins in the coffer, and your sins are gone. Luther was indignant. Luther was fired up, and he had seen enough, and he had heard enough. Forgiveness only came through the precious blood of Jesus. Luther's thesis was not designed to cause trouble, but Luther was hoping that others would begin to debate these objections. Instead, though, what happened was that the, the thesis took, uh, took root in the public the common people grabbed the thesis. They began copying the thesis in the printing press, and they began disseminating the thesis all throughout Germany. And before you know it, before Luther even knew it, everybody was reading the 95 Thesis and other things that he had written. Luther would actually send a copy of this to his intended audience, his contemporaries, men that he respect, respected like Albert of Brandenburg, the Archbishop of Mainz. This is what he told him. And listen now to Luther's reverence. I, I believe he was sincere. He literally respected authority and never wanted to be insubordinate. He writes to Albert, Father in Christ and most illustrious prince, Forgive me that I, the scum of the earth, should dare to approach your sublimity. The Lord Jesus is my witness that I am well aware of my insignificance and of my unworthiness. I make so bold because of the office of fidelity which I owe to your paternity. If you will look over my thesis, you will see how dubious the doctrine of indulgence is, which is so confidently proclaimed. Martin Luther Augustinian doctor of theology. That's how he signed his letter. The Reformation for Luther was all about his courage. It was his courage to stand on Scripture. In fact, every point of the Reformation is fastened to the pages of history because of Luther's courage. His courage to say, Scripture is the final authority. Thus we get sola scriptura. All the solas come from him. He had, he had come to resolve what God, that God's righteousness was obtained only through faith, thus sola fide, and that by grace alone, sola gratia, the courage that Luther gave us, this was the courage that led to Luther giving us the solas. Luther taught that indulgences were not meritorious and that salvation was based on the merits of Christ alone, who Luther said, called the only mediator for God and man, quoting Scripture, of course. Thus, he gave us solus Christus. Luther and his courage impacted the whole world, even the lay people. Luther disagreed with the priesthood that taught that the secular and the sacred were impenetrable spheres and that only the clergy were engaged in sacred duties. When you go to work... The sacred stops, and now the secular began. No, for Luther, all of life was lived and livable to the glory of God, whether you were clergy or not, 
whether you were in the church or not, whether you were attending a mass or not. Your work as a, as a minor was just as valuable to God as the clergy's work all the week long in the church. God, we know from 1 Corinthians 10.31, teaches us that everything that we do is to be done to the glory of God. Everything. Your lunch break is to the glory of God. Thus he gave us sola dia gloria. Now, Luther's courage to believe. Stay with me. I know it's a lot of information. Stay with me. Ultimately, Luther's departure from the Roman Catholic Church and their teaching made him an enemy of the state. I'm fast-forwarding, you know, uh, hundreds of pages here in biography, but you get the point. Luther's views caused trouble. Eventually, Luther was excommunicated from the church. Luther was considered a spawn of Satan by many in the church. His marriage really angered the Pope. He married Katerina von Bora, a nun, a runaway nun of the Cistercian order. Luther's Reformation reached a boiling point, however, when a papal edict, a papal bull, was ordered that Luther had to appear at a meeting at the Diet of Worms to recant 41 statements that he had made, including all of the, 91, the 95 Theses. Now, leading up to this all-important hour, Luther was public enemy number one. There was bounty on his head. There were uh, mercenaries hunting for him. Luther lived much of his life in hiding. I don't know if you knew that. But he received help from the elector of Saxony, Prince Frederick III. He guaranteed Luther's safe transport and then eventually had Luther abducted in the night and taken to a castle at uh, Waterberg. But Luther, uh, people wondered if Luther was even going to appear at the Diet of Worms. And Luther responded to some of his friends in a letter that he wrote. And he said this, This will be my recantation at Worms. Previously, I said that the Pope is the vicar of Christ. I recant. Now I say the Pope is the adversary of Christ and the apostle of the devil. <laughs> There's Luther getting in the Pope's hair right there. During the Reformation, one of Luther's greatest opponents was Johann Eck. Eck and Luther had debated at Leipzig, and Eck could not overthrow Luther's arguments the infallibil- uh, against the infallibility of either pope or church. Eck was assigned the job of calling Luther to repent, to recant all of his writings at Worms. The scene at the Diet of Worms was super intense. So intense, in fact, that Luther was seen visibly shaking and trembling, and he asked for more time to think. Luther was given 24 hours to make up his mind. Will he recant? Luther's contemporaries compared Luther's trial at Worms to the trial of Jesus before Pontius Pilate. Luther was so famous with the peasants in Germany that seizing him was not going to be as easy as some would think. Revolt could ensue. Finally, Here's Luther's famous courageous response before uh, the emperor, Charles V, Eck, John Eck, the Pope's nuncio, Eliander, and many other bishops and people in attendance. This is Luther's famous words, quote, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in the councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience, which is captive to the word of God. I cannot, will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. Now some have quoted Luther as saying, Here I stand, I can do no other. God help me, but that is according to uh, Bainton and Heiko Obermann, not original. Luther would go on from here to write directly uh, to Charles V, the emperor, where he once, once again, where he wrote to him and told him he would not recant for the same reasons. 
From this point on, Luther's life would play out in a long history of political drama. He lived much of his life in seclusion, in hiding, in fear. In the castle at Wartburg, uh, he translated the Bible into Germany. At Wartburg, he said he had wrestled with the devil and that he was, and he was uh, immersed in sins and lusts. He was battling his flesh, translating the Bible for all of the German-speaking people, and it was not a spiritually easy task. But he was protected, again, by Frederick III. Luther's courage gave rise to the Protestant Reformation. It's that simple. His beliefs were challenged to the very end. To the very end, Luther never got a break. And this is where you and I can identify right here. How do you expect to leave this world as a Christian? Luther, his whole life, said, I prayed to God for a peaceful death, but he would not have one. We know from Luther's biographers that his faith was tested to the very end. Here's Luther at the very end of his life now. His first biographer was one of his enemies, Johannes Cocleus, and if I pronounce that wrong, I'm sorry. But he had renounced Luther as the spawn of the devil and had reported that at his death, God had forsaken him. But Obermann gives the courageous account of his death. These are his words. On February 18, 1546, even as he lay dying in Eisleben, far from home, Martin Luther was not to be Uh, not to be spared a final public test, not to be granted privacy, even in the last most personal hour. This is what someone asked him. Reverend Father, will you die steadfast in Christ and to the doctrines that you have preached? Here you are on your deathbed. You're about to breathe your last, and people are challenging your conviction. Will you still not recant? You still going to hold on to those doctrines? I can hear the devil telling each and every one of us the same thing on our deathbed. You really believe all that? Has this been all a joke? Is this really what you believe? Trying to undermine and trying to get you to falter the last moment of your life? Yes, replied the clear voice for the last time. He would hold on. He would die steadfast in Christ. The deathbed in in the the Eisleben Inn had become a stage. It was a stage. And straining their ears to catch Luther's last words were both enemies and friends. Boy, God did not spare Luther one final test of gospel fidelity. And brothers and sisters, I don't know that he will for us either. Jesus says, after all, Matthew chapter 10, verse 22, it is those that endure to the end that will be saved. You can't look back on a life of spiritual victories. You can't live your life on the fumes of yesteryear. Oh, you, shouldn't, you should see who I was 20 years ago. I used to be very zealous. I was very involved. When I was your age, I was very, very passionate for Christ. I used to be involved in church. I used to be very spiritual. We can't do that. Jesus calls us to follow him to the very end. Taking up your cross doesn't end until death. But this is the great encouragement for you and I. The author of Hebrews says, You have need of endurance. And that's how I feel. When I look at the life of Martin Luther and what he suffered, I could say, we have need of endurance. We have need of endurance. And to rewind back to Dr. Moeller and what he was talking about in terms of what is the proper response to a postmodern world where you and I, like Luther, are surrounded by religion, surrounded by ignorance, biblical ignorance, surrounded by compromise, theological compromise on every side, surrounded by all sorts of cultural, political, spiritual danger. 
But this is the great encouragement for you and I. We are also, like Luther, surrounded by a sovereign God who will not let us falter. He will keep us from final falling. He will keep us from final falling. Post-Christian America? Well, that depends what you mean. If you believe that moralism is Christianity, then yes, we are living in a, in a, in a, Christian, in a Christian culture. But moralism is not Christianity. Liberalism is not Christianity. Cultural Christianity is not Christianity. Thanking the man upstairs, the theology of the man upstairs is not Christianity. The only Christianity that will save from the wrath of God is the Christianity that Luther believed in. That Jesus Christ alone is our mediator. That salvation is by faith alone. That on the basis of grace alone. And that on the authority of Scripture alone. All to the glory of God alone. And aside from that, that we don't have Christianity. No matter how much you sing, no matter how much you write, no matter how much you interview, no matter how many conferences you have, no matter how many people you say you know, no matter how popular or how influential you get, if you surrender the essentials of the Christian faith, you surrender the historic Christian faith, you surrender the faith. And so many people in this postmodern world are surrendering the faith just like that. You and I have a lot to learn from Luther because like Luther, brothers and sisters, we might find ourselves isolated, branded intolerant, politically incorrect, unpatriotic, heretical because we believe that marriage is between one man and one woman. And that homosexual marriage is actually a societal illusion. Yes, that people are walking around delusional with an illusion in their mind that what they're doing is marriage when it is not. You try to hold on to the true Christ and everyone will condemn you so far as the world goes. And why should we be surprised? After all, it was Jesus who promised us, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. John chapter 7, the, the world hates me because I testify against it that it is evil. If the world hates me, don't be surprised if it hates you. A servant is not greater than his master, is he? If they have hated the master, why are you surprised if they malign his servants? Brothers and sisters, I leave you today not with pessimism, but with great encouragement. The same kind of encouragement that Luther received is the same kind of encouragement that all of God's people have been receiving from day one. Be courageous. I am with you. Joshua chapter 1. Matthew 28. I am always with you even to the end of the age. Paul, St. Paul, Ephesians 6, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Jesus, Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who could kill your body and are unable to kill your soul. Rather, fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus said, are, not, are you not worth more than many sparrows? And yet, none of them can fall to the ground apart from your Father. You and I are, more, are worth more than many sparrows in the eyes of God. And so in our cultural context, we have need of endurance, but we have great reason to have courage to stand like Luther, to speak the truth uncompromisingly, unshifting. I'm not talking about certain theological differentiations. We can disagree on eschatology. We can disagree on how to run a church. We could disagree on whether the, the, the carpet should be blue or red. But we cannot disagree ever, ever, ever 
we cannot disagree on what is the gospel. What is the gospel? And it doesn't matter if you're on CNN. It doesn't matter if you're on Larry King. Well, no, Larry King's retired, isn't he? It doesn't matter if you're surrounded by cultural Christians who say that as long as you have faith, one of the big problems today in our world, faith has become God. Faith has become God. Be a person of faith as long as you have faith. He's a man of faith. Faith is not God. God is God, the object of our faith. That is God. And it is not enough to say you're a person of faith. Faith in what? I have college students that tell me they have faith in all sorts of things. And it's not okay to say that you are a person of faith. When you are a person of faith, devoid of historic faith, your faith is null and void. Let's pray. Father, like Luther, I don't doubt that I've made many uh, big statements, general statements. I'm not, I don't deny that I may have overspoken the matter somewhere, but Lord, I also know that I cannot overspeak the danger of living in a postmodern world. I cannot overspeak the fact that the church is full of compromise all over, at least the visible churches. But we know that your invisible church is not. And though we, like Luther, might be surrounded in a culture with Christian symbols everywhere and surrounded by a people that are blind in the midst of so much light, Lord, we know that we have the truth. You have called us. And I'm just mindful of the words of Lord Jesus when he said, the world hates you because I chose you out of the world. Help us, Lord, no longer to have our identity in this sinful world, in this present evil age, comprised of all of its false ideologies, philosophies, political machinations, ethics, morals, religious standards, and false religions but help our identity to be solely in Christ, only in Christ, in Christ alone. Thank you, Father. Give us courage in Jesus' name. Amen.